Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series on the high country of North Carolina. So we are going to be doing a 10 episode deep dive into everything you need to know about buying a short term rental in this market. And we do have a few supplemental materials for y'all to check out over on our website. So any information that you need on pricing of short-term rental properties in this market, you can find it on our website at theshorttermshop.com. You can also find income data, thanks to our friends over at airdna.com. You can find that on our website, again, at theshorttermshop.com. If you guys are interested in buying a short-term rental property with a short-term shop agent in this market, you can email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com or you can join our Facebook group. We've created an amazing community with over 50,000 people where we talk about all short-term rental investing all day, every day. And you can join that. The name of the group is the same title as my book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. And we look forward to seeing you over there. Thanks, y'all. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Short Term Show special episode series on the high country. Today, we're going to talk about how to build your team. So where to find the people that you need from your real estate agent, to your lender, to once you close your vendors, your handy people, your cleaners, all of that stuff, we're going to kind of go over to give you a good idea of where and how to find those people in this market. A lot of familiar faces here today. We've got Julie McCoy. Julie, you want to introduce yourself really quick? Hey, everybody. I'm Julie McCoy. I am an agent with a short-term shop in the Tennessee Smokies, but I've spent a fair bit of time in Western North Carolina, been vacationing there since I was little. And so I have, have some familiarity. Glad to be here. And next we have our high country agent, Garrett Simmons. Garrett, introduce yourself real quick. Yeah, my name's Garrett. I am on Avery's team as a broker up here in the high country. I've been went to school up here, so on and off since uh, 2012, 2013, almost a decade. Um, so I have uh, seen a little bit, seen the area grow a ton and helped a ton of people buy investment property up here. So happy to be on. Thanks, Garrett. And last, we have Chuck Kramer, who has become a cult favorite on my Instagram and YouTube uh, channels. So Chuck, you want to introduce yourself? Retired IT executive, but I've got properties in Tennessee, Florida, uh, and have experience in other markets as well. I travel a lot, so I'm also on the customer side of things. And uh, I'm here to lend that expertise. I know a lot of things about a lot of different things. So, All right. Thanks, Chuck. All right. So where we're going to start here is, all right, so I'm an investor. I have decided I think I kind of want to buy in this market. What do I do next? Who do I need on my team? Well, you need to start out a lender and a real estate agent. And it's a little bit of a what came first, the chicken or the egg in terms of which one you call first. Because if you call the real estate agent first, they may want you to have a pre-approval already. If you call the lender first, they may want to know who your agent is. So you can really do either of those things first. Uh, you can shop around and find your own lender uh, and then go to the agent and say, hey, agent, here's my pre-approval to show seriousness. I mean, a good agent shouldn't be turning you away because you don't have a pre-approval yet. They should just be asking some questions to try to help you get what you need. So you could also find the agent first and then ask them if they have any recommendations uh, of 
of lenders that they've used in the past that or that their clients have used in the past where the deal's gone really smoothly. So you can really do it either way. It's just kind of it's the finding of the individual who specializes in this that is pretty difficult. So, you know, you're probably not going to have a lot of success with going on one of these big online lenders when you're trying to buy a cabin in the high country, just because there are some nuances to that. And a big online lender, a lot of times they're just, you know, receiving online leads of people who just clicked a button that said, I want to learn what I can pre get pre-approved for. 95% of those lenders are going to be doing primary homes, mostly 95% of those leads. So something to think about. So you need to find people who specialize in what you are trying to do. So we will start, let's start with lenders. Um, so when you're looking for a lender, you want to find a lender who does a lot of the type of asset class deals that you're buying in the market that you want to buy in often. So I am not going to go to my commercial lender in Oklahoma and say, hey, I think I want to buy a short-term rental in the high country of North Carolina. They're going to be like, what's that? We don't think we want to do that. So um, let's talk a little bit. Who has Who wants to go first with their tip for finding a lender? I mean, I would start by asking my agent, honestly, because um, I want to know who do they have a relationship with? Who have they done deals with, like you said earlier, that have closed smoothly? Um, I also know that it can be valuable in a competitive offer situation if your lender is familiar and has a good reputation to the list agent on a particular property. So that might be able to give you an edge in an otherwise competitive situation. And uh, plus, I just want a smooth transaction. I want someone who's familiar with, with the asset class. So I'd start by asking my agent for uh, their recommendations and try and get two or three so you can talk to all of them and see who's going to be the best fit for you. Um, but yeah, that's where I would start. That's a really good point because when I've been on the buyer side before and I've sent an offer to a listing agent and said, Hey, here's our offer. Here's our pre-approval. And they've been like, Hey, we've had terrible experiences with that particular lender before. And we want this to go smooth for our client. Do you mind getting a prequal from another lender? And they can't require you to do that, but you know, real estate is kind of a game of relationships and it can make a difference. So that's that's a good point. I didn't think about that, Julie. 100%. I agree. Um, as far as like, I know every agent, even on our team, kind of functions a little bit differently. There's no, you know, right way to do everything. Um, you know, I, I'll talk to anybody. I kind of look at it as kind of like a first date. Um, you know, I'll hop on the phone with you and talk to you if you have a pre-approval or not. You know, I'm not going to move heaven and earth and look at 30 houses for you if you don't, um, which is, you know, usually disclose, but yeah, I'll tell people what to buy or, you know, what, what lenders to use, what lenders that I have experience using. It's a little bit tricky, you know, not trickier, but it's, it's different up here with different nuances on, you know, everything. Is, a lot of properties are marked rural, which can come up on different lenders and appraisers. And some lenders aren't experienced with, you know, experienced with that and what that looks like. Um, if you're buying a condo, uh, a lot of these good condos are condo non-warrantable condo tells, which is two, you know, two kind of big donos with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Um, you know, there's a complex up here that I know two lenders in the entire high country and every agent knows there were two lenders that can lend up here and they were local lenders. I just wrote an offer on one yesterday with a client and they had a pre-approval and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm not saying your lender can't, but I'm willing to bet that they can't. And the listing agent sure enough was like, Hey, just so you know, are they going to be using X, Y, and Z? 
for financing. And there's even an addendum in the contract saying they have to use one of these two because everyone in this area knows those two people are the only ones as of now that can close on these particular condos. So condos in my area, 100% um, ask me, or there are only a couple lenders um, that can even lend on some of these condo hotels. Um, so that that is something to think about. Then it's just far as a regular single family home. Um, yeah, word travels fast in a small town. So if you got a lender that town doesn't know about, hey, what are these people? And it's not smooth. Um, you know, finding appraisers to get out here. Appraisers are, I think, maybe short everywhere, but super short here. And the age gap is super, you know, high and a lot of old people and a lot of lenders. I know it's not necessarily kosher, but know a lot of the appraisers. And so it can be really helpful to have um, to have a local lender or someone who's done a lot of deals up here that can make a listing agent, make it, you know, tell their seller that an offer is a little more attractive because they're using so, you know, just similar to an agent, similar to a lender. Um, you know, so I think that's super important and I'd be more than happy to, to steer people towards the lenders that I've had a good experience using. Yeah. So that is one thing that, so when you get into these really specific condo buildings, so I did just say, you know, they can't require you to use a certain lender, but when you get into these really nuanced situations like that and the listing agent and everybody is saying, Hey, there are only two lenders who can close on these. I would definitely put some stock in that. Like that does hold weight. I've seen buyers before get into situations where they are, are buying a condo and they're they are being told hey these are these condos are real wacky there's some weird things about them that only really these two lenders are able to to close on these and they'll say no no I just want to see you know my loan officer that's you know somewhere else really thinks they can bang it through and then the reason that people are telling you that only those couple lenders can do it is because they want to get through the transaction as smoothly as possible and not run into hangups on the fourth week of the contract when it's supposed to close next week, when right. it goes through underwriting and the lender is told, Hey, we actually can't do this. So right. uh, I think a lot of people are skeptical of that kind of stuff. And they think that, Oh, you know, they're in bed with the lender or whatever, which is illegal by the way. But if they're tell if you're being told from a lot of different areas, different places, people that there's really only two, one or two lenders that can do this condo for this reason. I'd probably listen to that. So you don't waste not only your own time, but don't waste that lender's time who you initially were using just to get to the end and them not be able to do it. And then they lose the deal too, after they've done all that work. Right. So uh, just something to think about. I think it's also, it's kind of the way you tell people, like I tell people, I don't say like, Hey, you got to use a local lender. I say like, Hey, listen, it's a little bit trickier and this is why. So like people have a really crazy relationship with their lenders. Like they would take a bullet for their lender because of so-and-so. You mean, I talk to some people that are like, man, they sound like they love their lender more than they love their wife um, with how many deals they've done, you know? And the lenders that I use, again, I'm not getting any sort of kickback or commission, but I'm the same way. Cause I know like, Hey, this lender is going to close this deal. It's going to be smooth for everybody. So I tell these people, Hey, I know you love your lender and their license in North Carolina. So ask them, even though I know the answer, ask them, can they lend on a non-warrantable condo tell? with a 10% down loan in a rural area. It, it, use those words. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And 99% of the time they come back and be like, yeah, they can't lend on that. So then they just answer the question. They, they sent one text, they sent one email out to their lender and they lent, their, that lender told them, yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that. So now you already got their trust and like, okay, this guy, instead of just being like, yeah, I'll use my local lender, it's easier. Having kind of the reasons of why um, can help somebody, help convince somebody. Because at the end of the day, you're right. I don't really care who's, so, you know, 
I don't care what lender Julie's using when she buys the property. I just want to close on time so I can get keep my reputation up in the high country as being an agent who closes deals and you know gets things closed on time. So rates don't rate locks don't change, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of different incentives to um, you know, on both sides to to have a smooth transaction. So kind of knowing why local lenders are helpful, you can just put the ball in the buyer's court and be like, okay, ask your lender if they can do this, if they can, you know. And I've been surprised yeah. there's some times when that does happen and that lender can do it. And now, okay. And there's a, add one more lender to the list that can close deals in the high country, but um, just being upfront with them is, is helpful. Yeah. And- communication is really important and just letting the lender know, asking questions, letting them tell you that they can't do something rather than assuming that they can't. Uh, Chuck, do you have something? I was just going to say, if you're, if you decide not to start with the local lender, make sure you ask your lender if they do business in that market, you know, how many deals have they closed there? And have they, you know, are they all STRs? Have they done condos? You're interviewing them. You're hiring them. So right. put them through that process. The and don't ignore a couple of the national guys that, uh, you know, in the Smokies market, I'm not going to mention which one, but there's a huge national bank, which was the only bank outside the area that did a lot of stuff. Um, you know, in, in the uh, back in the day, like pre-COVID, not that long ago, um, if you wanted a property in the Smokies, your best bet was to go to a bank in the Smokies. But there was this one national lender, which had like, I don't know, maybe 15 percent, 20 percent of the mortgages. Um, And they didn't even have a branch. (laughs) The last thing that I'll say on lenders, too, is that, um, you know, there are local lenders. There is a specific local lender that I personally use um, for particular properties. That's a commercial lender that will give you a commercial product um, that a big, large national commercial bank probably would not do. But he's a one man shop or a couple man shop in town in Boone. And I have a property that it was construction, a perm loan on a short-term rental. And he was able to use air DNA number. I mean, again, that's something that's universal across the board, but, you know, trying to call some local banks, local lenders, and even some commercial products that typically they're going to be on 20 year arms, but, um, can be, can be good and they can appraise and they can use a lot of the rental revenue that a residential appraiser would do. So don't necessarily bang on it, but don't rule out a commercial product, at least up here. And there's some local people that can do that. Awesome. Julie, do you have anything to add to the lending conversation before I move on to agents? No, I think we uh, touched on all the, all the key points. Awesome. All right. Moving on to agents, which three of the four of us are agents. So we probably have a little more to say about agents than anything else because we've been through it. We've seen a lot of it. Um, So when you're looking for an agent, in the market that you're looking to buy in. Again, same as with a lender, and this is in my book, so sorry if I'm being repetitive for some of you who've listened to our other podcasts and things. You want to ask an agent a few questions. So uh, there's a difference between an agent who specializes in short-term rentals and is in the game and is plugged in and what I call an Aunt Susie agent. And Aunt Susie agent is probably somebody who's been licensed for decades and they may do a few deals a year, but they don't specialize in anything. And, um, you know, everybody everybody has an Aunt Susie that's an agent. Um, and you want an agent who specializes in what you're trying to do. So even if they're a really busy agent, you don't want to, like, you don't want to come to me and say, hey, Avery, I want to buy a 50-unit apartment complex in Destin. I'm going to tell you I'm not the agent for you because I don't do that. That's not what my expertise is in. I am single family, short-term rentals. That's me all day. So you want to make sure that you're choosing the right agent who does a lot of deals in the asset class that you are trying to do in the market you want to do that in. 
So a lot of people, and I, I catch heat for this all the time. Like I've said in other podcasts, I have three one-star reviews on my book right now. And two of them are from pissed off real estate agents because they didn't like what I said about real estate agents as a whole. Um, but it is the way that things work. So when you're interviewing an agent, first thing you want to ask is how many deals did you close last year? You want a busy agent. And the reason for that is the market changes and let's, I mean, let's just look at the past few years. So if you were to have hired an Aunt Susie agent in 2021, who'd only closed two or three deals a year before, you probably were never going to get a deal closed because they would have thought it was absolutely outrageous that you had to offer 50,000 over asking just to get your property considered. I mean, just get your offer considered. So you may not have ever gotten to the point of, they would have advised you not to do that time and time again. And really that's what it took to get a property. Uh, and then same same thing, Aunt Susie agent today, maybe they closed a, deal, a couple deals in 2021 and they learned you've got to offer 50,000 over asking. You hire them today and they say, hey, you got to offer 50,000 over asking because they haven't done any deals since then. And you don't have to do that anymore. And now you've just paid way more than you need to pay because your agent doesn't have their finger on the pulse of the market. So that's why I always say there's there are other influencers out there that say the agent who answers the phone first is the one to use. The agent who answers the phone first is probably going to be Aunt Susie because the agents that are busy are out doing deals. So um, you want a busy agent, in my opinion. You want an agent who's out there doing deals, who's who's plugged in, who knows what it takes to win and you know what how much you're able to negotiate because you know our job is to get you a deal. Uh, you you just want somebody who's in there and who's who's understanding that. Uh, you also, after you ask them how many deals they've done in the past few years, you want to know how many of those were primary homes versus how many were short-term rentals because it's an entirely different, while they are still single family residential and technically the same asset class, they're kind of different asset classes, to be honest. So you want somebody who's really plugged into the short-term rental space, especially in an area where there's a lot of regulations. Uh, I've seen people get sold properties, even in the Smokies, where there are very few areas that don't allow short-term rentals. I've seen people get sold properties that were not zoned for short-term rental and they don't know until after they've closed and, and they're stuck. So uh, make sure they've done you know a, a fair amount of deals in the past year. Most of them are short-term rental deals. And uh, what else? What am I missing? Oh, obviously uh, you want to ask them if they own their own short-term rentals. Now it's not a deal breaker if they don't own them. Uh, it's totally fine if they specialize in it. And that doesn't mean that they're not experienced at doing short-term rental transactions, but it does help in just the empathy factor that it's really emotional when you're buying your first one. It's really scary. And it helps if your agent has been there before. I will never forget how scared I was between my first contract when we went under contract on our first short-term rental and when we got our first booking, I was terrified. Luke and I were looking at each other like, oh my gosh, did we just spend all of our money on something that's not going to work? Have we ruined our lives? And it's helpful if somebody understands that those are the emotions that you're going through and to you know kind of handle with care because it is a scary time and um, it helps if, if they've been in that seat before too, but definitely not a deal breaker. Uh, anybody else have anything to add to this in terms of short-term rental specific or finding the right agent. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of just to, just to add on to that, I'll be honest. I mean, I got my real estate license, so I didn't never had to use a real estate agent. You know, that that's part of the reason as an investor, the reason I got my license and here I am talking as a broker, you know, so I am, I am on, I think the, you know, 
the overall mantra of agents is, you know, hey, this agent is just trying to make a dollar and make a make a make a commission and do the least amount of work they can to make whatever commission. And the people that are trying to cut them out, you know, a lot of times rightfully so, because there's a lot of sneaky agents that are whatever. And if I'm selling my house, yeah, I'm not paying six percent to somebody this to Aunt Susie. I'm just going to sell myself. So a lot of a lot of a lot of that kind of pushback is because of the realtors and whole as, as a whole. There's no qualifications to become a real estate agent other than taking a test and studying a little bit. That is. To be honest, not too tough. You know, I'm not talking my my own job down, but the barrier to entry is to become an actual real estate agent is not high. That being said, there are agents that are ten times better than another, and uh, so I think talking to them and agreeing with some people, like, hey, listen, like I'm, I think that volume of sales can help sometimes some people not to toot your own horn, but be like, hey, listen, I'm not selling. I don't need to sell this house. I don't need to. You know, helping you buy a house is not going to put dinner on the table for me tomorrow. You know, this this is how I do. This is how I work. This is what I know. If you don't want to do it, you know, take it or leave it. Kind of, I mean, everyone's a little bit different, but kind of being able to play hard to get and being like, okay, I'm going to help you, and this is how it's going to work, and this is why I'm are you know can do certain things. I think the negotiation thing is huge up here, just because I am in a market when we kind of circling back to market specific where there aren't a lot of full-time agents up here. You have a lot of the Aunt Susans, but so it's kind of close knit. You have a reputation, you know, people, you know, listing agents. Hey, I know this agent, you know, I just had dinner with them last night. I, I this seller, you know, that you're going to have a little bit more negotiating power in room. Um, agents talk, you know, they just do. Um, and so to be on somebody's team that has a good reputation can be helpful um, to get you the best deal. You know, knowing when you look at an inspection report, you know, I can look at an inspection report and be like, hey, I know that, you know, this could get us, whether you're worried about it or not, this might get us an extra 2000 bucks in closing credits. I can know how to frame it to this agent, you know, based on the seller, et cetera. Um, you know, do you have even some for sale by owners? I, I just dealt with it yesterday where there's guys sell, for sale by owner. He wants to, he'll, he's willing to pay a buyer's agent, but doesn't, you know, not paying a listing agent. And I just found out his whole car is exactly everything just because he doesn't have an agent and he's 25 years old and he was able to spill so many things to me that he should not have, not illegal, but just like lost all of his, you know, bargaining power and we're going to get a deal on this house. Um, so that, that's just something to think about when you're interviewing an agent. You know, I think the first thing is like, whether it's me or anybody else in any other market, like, all right, what's this guy's motivation? Is Does he just want to make a dollar? Which obviously, you know, I don't work for, no one works for free. They want to get paid. But at the end of the day, are they passionate about what they're doing? Are they passionate about helping people? Is this guy really on board for helping me to buy 10 houses or he just wants me to buy one and it might end up being a, you know, crapshoot and, but he doesn't care because he's going to get all this other thing, you know? So that's something that, you know, I personally value of like, and I tell people all the time, Hey, listen, I'll tell you that this deal sucks because I'm, I want you to buy six or seven houses. And if I just kind of mm, just agree with you and yes, ma'am, you into buying one, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to call me maybe to sell it or call somebody else because you thought I did a bad job, you know? And so that's my two cents worth as far as agents. I'm agree with people that a lot of agents suck. And um, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, one of the things I want to touch on and Garrett touched on as well is the relationship aspect. When you do a lot of deals, then you communicate with a lot of different agents and they get familiar with you. They get comfortable with you. You develop relationships with them. And just like, you know, having a lender that's familiar to a list agent, having your buyer's agent be someone who's familiar with a list agent, that also helps because again, it's, it goes towards like, how much can I count on this transaction being smooth? Are they easy to communicate with? Um, you know, are they going to allow their, you know, how do they handle, you know, complications or if there's something on the inspection report, that's iffy, 
you know, it's like, how do you talk, you know, how do you talk about that with your client? Like there's ways to discuss issues on inspection reports. Some, you know, you can wind somebody up and get them super worried about something that may not require that level of worry, or you can just kind of talk through something in a rational manner. And, you know, here's, you know, here's a set of options for you. And, um, and list agents want somebody who's going to be able to guide the buyer through a smooth transaction. Um, So it's, it's similar in that respect as well. And the more, uh, you know, the more deals someone closes generally, I think the better they're going to be at that. What do you think, Chuck? Well, one thing I haven't heard that I want to make sure people understand is there are buyers groups in different areas. Now the high country may not have a big buyers group, but there is a short-term shop group that uh, you can certainly come to and you can ask what are people's experiences? I mean, after all, when you talk to an agent and you say, hey, can you give me some references? It's like any other business. They're only going to give you the good references. So you need to do a little research on your own. Find other owners in the area, people that have bought and ask them who they used. What was their experience like? So. Yes, yes. Very good advice. And I I made some that's like you want to hear from people that may not have been provided by the actual agent as a reference, which that. In some markets where there might not be a big buyer group presence, that might be hard to find, but it does exist. And if you can get it, you should. Um, I have a few notes. Uh, So in terms of finding agents or interviewing agents, and and Garrett, you mentioned something earlier about caring about your reputation with, with the agents in the market. Of course, we care about our reputations with buyers, but we also care about our reputation with our peers or who are technically coworkers, even though they're competitors. So uh, I see investors complain about that, especially on real estate investing groups all the time that uh, I really, they want to submit like, I I don't know always the details, but typically what I gather from these posts is that they're trying to do something kind of crazy and their, their agent is telling them that's probably not a good idea for X, Y, and Z. And then that person says, why won't my agent just do what I say? They're only worried about their own reputation with the other agents. And I, I see investors view that as a bad thing, like a negative thing about agents, but it works. It's to your benefit as a buyer that your agent has a good relationship with the other agents in the market, because whether people want to ag- agree with this or not, it matters when you're submitting an offer to a listing agent in a multiple offer situation, who your agent is and what their relationship is with that agent. Uh, I've seen it a million times where especially, I mean, there's not as many multiple offer situations this year as there were a few years ago where when I'm the listing agent and we get three or four really similar offers and my seller's like, okay, all of the monetary values here are the same. Who's going to be the least amount of bullshit frankly, to work with. Like who's going to get this to the closing table the easiest? And I will I will tell them, hey, I've worked with this agent a hundred times. It's always been smooth. I've never worked with this agent, so I can't comment. And this agent really makes things difficult and are, they're not a good communicator or, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you, it matters um, what their relationship is. And another thing that I also want to hit on is when agents like tout themselves as I'm a bulldog. I I fight for my clients. I beat things up for my clients. So that matters too, because 
when you get into a negotiation situation and everybody's like, I think it's a very, very outdated form or not form a negotiation tactic to like go in and like smack people around because I think you get less for your client by going in and smacking people around than coming in and talking like a rational human and saying, Hey, you know, here's the problems. Here's what my buyer wants to see. What can we all do to get there and make this mutually beneficial for everyone? When you cause angst in a deal between the buyer and the seller, it's actually working to the detriment of your client than if you're going in and talking, you know, respectfully and everybody giving a feeling of everyone working together rather than I'm coming in and I'm going to smack you around so I can tell everybody what a bulldog I am. I, I don't like that. And it does matter what your agent's reputation is within their peer group. So anyway, off soapbox, but yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think even to add on to that, I mean, I think, I think it's great to talk about. I, I think that, you know, going back to the investors that are like, Hey, we're asking for everything, whatever. It's like, I'll be honest. There are certain cases, you know, we're in the real estate is all about talking to people and, and, and morphing and, you know, the best agents, in my opinion, are the ones that can talk to anybody. They can talk to the commercial bulldog. It's like, all right, I need to actually like, you know, cross my T's dot my eyes when I talk to this lady versus that I might not work with aunt Karen's. I mean, there have been properties where somebody wants to offer something on an aunt on a, as you said, aunt, I said, aunt Karen, aunt Susan, um, both kind of the same thing, but, um, there have been times when I actually tell a buyer, hey, actually, I think we could get more. Ask for more. Ask for less, more closing costs, more whatever. And it can actually work with the right agent, you know, and versus other times I'm like, hey, I know this, you know, this has happened before. I've done this before. Or hey, this isn't a property that is, you know, something that we can ask for. We don't have the leverage here. And that's really kind of comes to the agent, uh, you know, if not necessarily saying, hey, every single time you're telling a buyer, Hey, don't do this. Sometimes I'm doing the opposite, but knowing that situation, you know, the aunt Susan's now, I don't even know what to say. I sometimes love those. They're frustrating because they, you know, they use a hey, Kathy, machine. aunt Cindy, aunt, all hey, of it. like, you right, know, all, all of those age range names. <laughs> they, um, you know, they, they can be frustrating because they don't have a fact you know, they use, they actually for your fax number and they don't even have a cell phone. It's a landline. So it's impossible to get a hold of them. That being said, they're not with the times and they're not, you know, you can get a deal from them. And so if I know how to communicate with them, then, you know, I can tell my buyer, Hey, it's gonna be a little bit hard to communicate. Yes. They're going to say yes, no, but just kind of bear with me. We're dealing with, you know, an archaic agent here. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's people business. And, um, I think sometimes people forget that when it comes to agents and, um, and the sellers, you know, some agents can compartmentalize things a little bit better. I have relationships with agents that we can do a deal, then go get a beer with, and it's fine. And then other agents take things more personally than others that you just kind of have to negotiate and figure that out when you talk to them. And so, you know, having a buyer who knows, who knows that is uh, a buyer's agent is, is helpful. I have three more points I wanted to make before we can move on from the agent thing. So some things to watch out for when you're interviewing an agent it, that I would consider a red flag um, is that agent talking bad about other agents. So that's actually a real estate commission violation. And, you know, in, in any, any industry whatsoever, there's competitors. Like everybody's got competitors in any industry that they're in and if right off the bat, I mean, I just had an experience. So I'll give you my own personal experience with this. I am building a house right now or trying to. I'm having a real hard time getting it off the ground. 
but uh, I'm interviewing builders and I found a few, I narrowed it down to two or three. And one of them was just like, really, uh, he, he was very responsive. He was one of the most affordable. So I liked that. And when he, I introduced him to my architect and when he came to meet us for the first time, all he did was say horrible things about everyone, about talk bad about his uh, client that he's working on a deal with now, talk bad about their architect, talk bad about my architect, talk bad about like everybody. And I was like, man, I never called him back because I was like, man, he all he had to do was was to talk bad about everybody. I don't really want to be in business with this with somebody like this. So I think that that's a red flag. Um, and then other than that, like guys, just use your, your good judgment when you're interviewing people and make sure that they, uh, their communication style closely matches yours. And this is somebody that you want to be wrapped up in a really emotional situation with for the next, you know, month to six months of your life, depending on how long it takes you to find a deal. Oh, one more thing, uh, that I just saw out of the corner of my eye on my notes when it comes to Facebook groups, like Chuck mentioned, And when it comes to, there's a lot of influencers out there, a lot of gurus out there. Um, When it comes to getting recommendations from those people, a lot of times they have great recommendations. They know what they're doing. They've worked with these people a number of times, but there are a lot of them out there that, that have this business model where they try to create passive income off of affiliate and referral fees, which is fine. That's, that's totally great. But where I've run into a problem with that before is um, a lot of times the best agent in the market does not always match up and and is not always the same person as the one who's willing to pay a bunch of referral fees. So here's what I mean by that. I was looking at buying something out West probably last year. And I asked a girl who I know works in that space or not works, invests in that space. And she's an influencer. And I said, hey, uh, I'm really interested in buying in that market. Can you recommend me an agent? Thinking she was going to send me the agent that she used. So she sent me an agent. I started talking to this agent and found out that she had never closed a deal before this agent. And so I went back to my friend and I said, hey, uh, is this who you worked with? And she said, oh, no, um, my agent's too busy. He doesn't do referral fees. And I'm like, oh, oh, cool. (laughs) Well, then. So uh, make sure. I mean, it's okay to ask an agent if they're getting paid for that recommendation. That's totally okay to ask that. And it might make them uncomfortable, but that's something that you you need to know to make sure that you're hiring an expert and not just somebody who's willing to pay uh, to pay for a deal. So anyway, that's my soapbox on that. And yeah, you get more bees with honey is, is all I'm going to say is uh, make sure that there's an open line of communication, whether it's lender, agent, whoever, whoever you choose to use, make sure that they know also but before you start asking them to do things that you haven't chosen that you're working you're trying to find the right fit so you want to make sure that you're up front with with them about what your intentions are and um ask those questions make sure they're doing a lot of deals doing a lot of short-term rental deals uh that they're they're plugged into the market and and you should be good i think that i think we've kind of beat the agent horse to death so we can move on to something else unless anybody has another point they want to make before we do I was just going to add also, you know, as you're talking to agents, ask them, um, you know, how well connected, find a way in your conversation to find out how well connected they are. Local contractors, handymen, cleaners, see if they can be a resource for those kinds of things as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think this actually, I have one more point. Um, I do think that 
agents who short-term rental agents who are also property managers in the area. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that's a bad thing, but it does create an extra source, like an extra space for conflict of interest. So keep that in mind when you're interviewing people. If, if you're interviewing an agent who's also a property manager, um, that does create the opportunity for a, several conflicts of interest, in my opinion. So, all right, moving on to, so you got your agent, you've got your lender, you're now under contract on a property and you, there are a few people that you're going to need while you are under contract. Uh, the main one is going to be your home inspector. So guys, how do we find home inspectors? Ask your agent. I've um, always asked my agent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a couple of them, really just one of them that I only need and use. Uh, if he's busy, I can have somebody else. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Um, really, when it comes to the entire team, um, and that's a kind of separate conversation. But, um, yeah, ask your agent. Um, there's some definitely some nuances. I know that could be a separate podcast and a separate discussion as far as, you know, with the home inspector and what to look for. But, um you know, I think, I think an important thing in North Carolina, you know, kind of reeling this back into a specific thing is, you know, we have a weird, our inspection period and time, the due diligence period um, is a lot more important than some other areas because in most cases, you're going to have some non-refundable money on the line. So you really need to make sure you have an agent that's like, hey, I know how long it takes for an appraiser to get out here. I know how long it takes for an inspector to get out here because you need to make sure all that stuff gets done during the due diligence period or else you could have money on the line that, you know, you're going to lose if, additional money you're going to lose and earnest money if you back out after, if you can't get an appraiser in time or whatever that is. So setting your deadlines when you make an offer with an agent that knows, okay, this is how long things take. And then being able to suggest to somebody, Hey, I would suggest getting a well inspection and a septic inspection. I mean, I have a lot of clients who don't even know what a septic tank is. They live in California. They, they, they were like, they, okay, what is this? What do I need to get this? It scares the shit out of them. Um, and so it kind of get t- not only a home inspection, but telling them, um, Telling them what uh, inspections to get can be helpful because sometimes there's an inspection that they don't even know exists that they need to get. So that's something um, to think about as well. And um, I have people for all of them and some home inspectors are better than others, mm-hmm. but that's another se- that's another separate conversation. Knowing kind of what to tell, you know, once we have a home inspection report back, you know, without being a contractor, without being a professional, being, you know, at least semi-knowledgeable to be like, hey, here's a guy that I, I'm not going to give you the answer to, but call this guy. He'll be able to explain what this inspection report means because sometimes a picture and a something in red can scare the crap out of somebody, even though it's just red in the picture. And then they call and that's just the inspector kind of covering their butt. You kind of have to remember inspector has to, if they don't look for it, if they, even in a new construction home, you know, we have Brad on a couple of these podcasts where he has, a new, and he gets an inspection on new construction and they're going to find something. No house is perfect. Just like, no, you know, I always use the dating analogy, but you know, girl is perfect. You know? <laughs> um, and so Poor figuring point. out, figuring out like, you know, a home inspector wouldn't have a job if they just said this house looks great. So they're going to put a lot of things down to cover themselves. So no buyer can come back to the home inspector and be like, you said my deck was fine and it, it collapsed, you know, whatever later they're going to, they, they have their own set of things. They're going to, you know, okay. Every single home inspection I've ever had, it's a, and this guy does yellow or green, yellow, no, green, orange, red, and orange is like moderate reds, whatever worse. Every single home inspection says negative grading and it's orange. Well, I guess I can't cuss on this. No crap because we're in the mountains <laughs> and every house is on a slope and there's negative grading, you know, and yeah. we laugh about it, whatever. That's, that's something that's not really an issue or it's, 
it is what it is. Um, you know, uh, tree overhang is an orange one. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a tree overhang <laughs> in your house. You know, you don't need a home inspector to do that. So there's certain things that come up on a report that, you know, if you bought a lot of properties before, you are a little bit less common. But if you have it, you know, you won't have to talk to somebody and know who to call um, to go through a home inspection report. And there's some things that come on. Radon's a big thing. It's like, oh, shoot, there's radon. I'm going to die. It's like, radon super common up here. It's a mitigation that we can probably get the sellers to pay for. It's going to be a thousand to 1500 bucks, depending on the size of the basement, cross space, whatever, you know, let's get that, you know, so trying to kind of talk people off the ledge, having an agent that is knowledgeable that can, you can refer to, to someone who is even more knowledgeable to say, Hey, they'll explain to you what the, this means about the deck or they're not having joist hangers on the deck or the radon or, you know, what the septic system means, et cetera. Um, and not necessarily being like, Hey, I don't know, whatever being a little bit knowledgeable to be like, Hey, okay. You know, and really just trying to calm somebody down. I kind of use the analogy of like a police officer or somebody when there's some sort of extreme situation where it's like, yeah, it's serious. But the last thing we need is for everyone to panic. It's like as an agent, it's an agent's job to kind of be like, okay, this might be an issue. I'm not going to undermine this issue, but there's always really a solution. I've been in this business not forever, but long enough to know that there's an, there's an age, there's a re- kind of a solution and a fix to something. And a lot of times, not most of the time, things are never really as bad as they seem. People kind of like to revert to worst case scenario, um, which is great and conservative when you're thinking about certain things. I'm not saying under undermining any of those things, but um, finding someone who can kind of not flip out because then if the buyer sees the agent flip out and like, oh no, this is, I've never seen this before. This is crazy. Then the buyer's like, uh, 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 well, you know, versus when I talk to him, like, okay, the agent seems to be like, he's going to take me on the right track and he knows somebody and he's seen this before, even if I've never seen it before, you know, just be like, okay, this guy's calm and collected and it's going to figure out a solution. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you can also find home inspectors on those local Facebook groups. I would say uh, even, I, I know we all ask our agents and just kind of, not make a big deal about it, but y'all need to be as listeners, at least talking to a couple home inspectors, like get your agent's recommendation, but make sure that you call them and you talk to them personally. Don't just say, Hey, Oh yeah, yeah. Just use whoever you want. Just, just schedule it. No problem. Uh, this is your house and this is a big purchase and you need to talk to your home inspector and make sure that you're hiring somebody who you, you understand, who explains to you the things that you may not understand, uh, to make sure that you're understanding I've said understand too much to make sure that you get the, a clear picture of what things are and what things aren't. You need to be talking to these home inspectors directly so that, um, you know, they're, they have want to make sure that that your best interests are being met in terms of understanding what's on a home inspection and how they work and things like that. So I would recommend getting two to three recommendations at least and calling all of them. Uh, you can get those from your agent, from local Facebook groups, a bunch of different places, but make sure you're calling and having conversations with people and not just hiring people that you've never talked to. Right. I mean, the other thing too is uh, up here, I don't know how it is in the Smokies or other areas. There are, there are inspection companies that have like four or five home inspectors and not just, and they're all different. So I, I would say that like, just because you're using Appalachian inspection or whatever the name is, or Boone inspection or Smokey, whatever it is, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting the same home inspector every time. And they're all, they're all kind of change. You know, it's the same thing as a short-term shop. Now all the, you know, I'm probably a lot worse and maybe better or whatever than other agents. So you're not getting the same thing in every different, you know, so make sure you got the actual inspector um, that, you know, is you're calling a different, a couple of different people. And it's not just necessarily a company because we do have inspection companies up here that have multiple inspectors. 
Awesome. Great information about home inspectors. And we do have a an episode later in the process that we have a home inspector on and we go With through and we talk about, yeah, and we uh, talk about home inspections in depth. So just stay tuned for that. All right. So we've made it through our inspection period. And a lot of people get confused about this. Where does an appraiser come from? Do we source an appraiser or is that somebody that has nothing to do with us whatsoever? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So appraisers are going to be hired by the lender, but it doesn't mean that the, that the lender is calling their favorite appraiser and saying, Hey, will you do this for me? It's a totally different process. So it is designed to be relatively blind. Um, the lender will be working with a pool of appraisers that, you know, are approved in this particular market. Um, and then there's a, a company that will kind of act as, there's a company that will then assign the assignment to an appraiser. So the lender does not get power over which appraiser gets assigned the job. And that's designed to, uh, you know, to promote objectivity, um, to prevent any sort of, you know, like backhanded, um, you know, situations where values may not be objective. So it is meant to, uh, meant to give you the most objective opinion of value possible, even though it's still an opinion of value and two different appraisers are going to have two different opinions, um, regardless of, you know, if they went to the same property or not. So it's a very different process. You'll work with your lender to get an appraiser assigned, but there's a lot of layers to that. Yeah. Yeah. I just mainly wanted to hit on the fact that we don't choose appraisers as investors and we have nothing to do with that. And even as angry as we may get at them, there's nothing we can do other than go start the loan process. I do have a few, I have a few things. Jared's bubbling over to answer to say something. (laughs) So this is actually could be knowledge for some people. Maybe it's just, I just learned about this. So Yes, 100% what Julie said. You know, these appraisers are a third party opinion. That being said, they matter because the lenders are going to use the appraisers. They don't care about mm-hmm. what a real estate agent says. You know, so I have learned, and it might even be crazier here. So back in 08, 09, when we had all this crazy real estate crash, anyone and their mother could be an appraiser. Well, because of all that, you know, they have put, you know, they put all these restrictions on lenders. You can't lend to so and so. Well, they also made it really hard to be an appraiser. You have to go to school, you have to get or some sort of certification. The barrier to entry is to become an appraiser after 08, 09 was super high. Well, they didn't start paying people more either. So there was no incentive for new appraisers to get into the market from like 08, 09 all the way to like now. So what happens there is that no young kids, no one wants to be an appraiser because it's not worth going to like getting all the certification, going to class, become an appraiser to get paid what they're getting paid. But if you're already in the game, it's worth it because now the market, whatever, and you're, you're already in. So the average age of appraisers is super high. At least in my area, it's like 70 or 65 or something. So you have, not only do you have a shortage of appraisers because we're in this mountain market where there's not a lot of younger appraisers because of the restrictions to become an appraiser. And, you know, when you have that, not only that, the local people that are 65, 70, no offense to 65, 70 year olds, they're not always with the times. They don't know the value. They're definitely not looking at short-term rental revenue. You know, so you're going to, their quote opinion that matters to a lender could be completely different than some other lenders. Um, and so that being said, yes, we can't pick the lenders, but what an, what you can do is you can pick an appraiser that you can, you can pick an appraiser that you don't want to appraise your property. So I have a blacklist of appraisers here. I have three or four appraisers that I will make sure do not appraise my properties. And I tell the lender, make sure that this lender, uh, this appraiser does not pick up this thing. I can't pick who does do it, but I can pick who doesn't do it. 
And so that's something that, again, is back to the agent thing is if an agent knows about bad appraisals or bad appraisers, he can make sure that appraiser does not appraise your property when you get under contract. Um, and so that's something to think about as well with appraisers. Um, at the end of the day, we're trying to, you know, underwrite residential properties from a commercial standpoint, but they still have to appraise residentially. So, you know, trying to have, you know, knowing that when you're offering and figuring stuff out can, can be helpful. All right. Well, I did not expect to spend so much time on appraisers. I learned some things myself. Um, all right. So we've made it through inspection. We've made it through appraisal. We have closed on the property. And um, so now what? Where do we find our cleaners, handy people, et cetera? And what questions are we asking them? Yeah, I mean, I think you skipped an important part, though, Avery, is is calling up and signing up for uh, Monday and talking company. to Luke. Or talking to you know, oh. before you close, yeah, going through management Mondays. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest benefits and added benefits that we you know, that we provide is you know we have a big list that I've made with Luke and cultivated. So you know, a lot of times people are like, "Hey, what should I do? What should I do?" I'm like, "Sign up for this class." I give them a link, and they're going to get all that stuff from from Luke and Management Mondays. So kind of anticipating that, so you can start setting stuff up before you close, um, and uh, that's a huge, huge, huge thing too. You are correct about that. And where do you find a Luke? How do you find one of them? You don't. You, you don't. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, you have, yeah, you're stuck with them. You know, just like you're stuck with, just like if you want to buy in the high country, you're stuck with me. Um, you're stuck with Luke. But yeah, so, yeah, getting prepared for that, learning all the management tips and tricks, especially if it's your first one. Um, I think it's super important to, to be prepared instead of just starting after closing um, to be ready to do that. But yeah, so uh, of course I couldn't forget to plug Luke. Um, but after closing, as far as, I guess you were going to probably ask a question. Oh yeah. Um, so I did skip title company and, and closing attorney, which I, I believe North Carolina is an attorney state, right? So typically how are we finding that? Does the agent choose it? Do I choose it? Do I need to be calling and looking for title companies before I get like when I get under contract or how does that work? Yeah, another crazy local archaic thing. Uh, it, it's an attorney state, so an attorney, a lawyer, has to do all the title work. Um, for lawyers, it's a cheaper thing of labor, so it's a lot of ret- uh, lawyers that are retired. So again, kind of without going deep into the weeds here, you know, a young buck attorney is not going to be a real estate attorney because they don't get paid that much. And so you're dealing with a lot of old school, older, retired. There's only about two in Watauga County that um, even do real estate. So there's about two title companies or attorneys here that I use. A lot of my clients use, um, they don't even electronically record in Watauga County. You got to walk to the courthouse and do it. And the court and the courthouse is a block away from these attorneys and title companies. So typically a lot of my clients just use the local attorneys. There's only a couple. Um, but yeah, that is something to think about when you think about attorneys, it's the same thing as title companies in, in other States. Awesome. All right. Now we've closed. We're done. Now we've gone to the title company and closed. And we need we need all our people, which you actually should be kind of starting this process before you close. But how are you finding cleaners, handymen? What are we asking them? Are we interviewing them before we close on the property? How's that? Let's go through that that process, mainly of how to find them. Yeah, I mean, I would look at. You can ask me. I'll give I'll give you a list. I can't promise that all the entire list is going to be great because cleaners can be not even cleaning anymore by the time I gave the list or made the list. So don't necessarily go entirely on me, but I definitely have some contacts. Um, you know, we've talked about some other podcasts. We kind of are a weird different have a couple submarkets in our area. So you might know somebody that has a property on Beach Mountain, but 
if you have a place in Boone, that cleaner might only clean houses on Beach Mountain. So they might not even come to Boone. So find and try to, you know, try to find specific cleaners close to your area. They're also going to want to clean your property a little more. If they're cleaning three properties in Boone and your property is right down the street, or if it's a condo that they're cleaning in the same complex, they're going to be a lot more, you know, it's going to be a lot easier for them. So that, ask me, ask your neighbors if you have them, who's cleaning your property. If you have a short-term neighbor, you know, short-term rental neighbor close to them, you'll be surprised at how many people are like, use this lady. She's awesome. Um, some people might be a little bit more protective. Uh, using the Facebook groups, I think is a huge resource is, is hey, who's anyone cleaning? Who do you have to build a deck? My AC, you know, I need someone to fix my heat, whatever it is. That's a huge resource because you, you know, not only you have me, but you have hundreds and thousands of people, whether they're short-term shop clients or not, that have rental properties in the area that, you know, you can get of just a big giant pool of, Hey, this person's great. This person's great. This guy sucks. Don't use this person, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, don't, you know, I obviously have some names for you. Don't just come to me or your agent in any market, go on Facebook, you know, talk to, or even Luke, obviously, you know, Luke's great. He's got this whole list and management Mondays, but things change and things evolve and he doesn't live here. He has no property here, you know, so those Facebook groups and your neighbors, um, can be a great resource to, uh, to find your contacts and your team. Yeah. I'm a big fan of leveraging Facebook groups for, you know, for finding vendors of, of any sort, because mm-hmm. most vendors, you don't need to have an ongoing relationship with, you know, it's like your cleaners, definitely with your handyman. It's like, you'll probably have your go-to, but you always want a couple of backups because sometimes you need something done faster than your main guy is available. Um, But then there's plenty of other vendors that you'll only need occasionally, plumber, electrician, HVAC. Um, So that's a little more as the occasion arises. I I think another thing too, we've touched about it on another episode, Avery, is... um is leveraging the college kid community, not necessarily for cleaning, but there's certain odd jobs. Even if it's like you bought a house that needs to be completely, all the furniture needs to be gone and like a dump and being put it using Facebook marketplace and college kids. I've had people say like, Hey, 200 bucks, you got to take everything out of this house. And there's enough couches that a college kid wants and they're there in a day. So using Facebook marketplace to do just little odd jobs, um, there's a big giant that I'm still a part of that I think anyone can kind of join. It's called App State Classified that has 30, 40,000 people in it that you, people will post, hey, I need this, need a tree cut down or whatever it is. And so that's another thing to think about, obviously, not necessarily hiring a college kid to be your cleaner because they got class and all that stuff, but do some odd jobs that you know might just be more labor than it is skilled labor that you, know, you can kind of tap into that market as well. That's a good point. Yeah, that's, that's a- very specific to your market, I think. So that's a really had- great tip. I've had people look, reach out to like the interior design department and like try to find students that might be able to work for free to help stage their property, stage their property to be like, Hey, you know, if they don't have a wife or, you know, somebody in their life, then they want to kind of state cut costs and not necessarily hire a full-time designer, find someone who's a little bit more motivated, like a college kid to come, you know, help furnish their place. That can be a good you know resource as well. That's a great idea. Calling the interior design, like, Hey, do you want an internship? to decorate my yeah. house. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Great. I, I love this idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's another world. I mean, if I had a million different, you know, if time wasn't an issue, I've gone down the rabbit hole of like trying to start some sort of interior design company slash whatever with a bunch of college kids that um, like could log onto an app or something like that, but they want to build their portfolio. So yeah. Grass cutting. I had friends in college that did that. They, that put a snow plow on their forerunner or whatever. And they would plow roads in the winter, in the, in the, in the wintertime when we got snow or they would cut grass in the summertime for a bunch of the Floridian people that, you know, 
weren't here or whatever. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of people up here that would do odd jobs um, that, that, that go to school up here. Wow. Uh, so in terms of other types of more specialized vendors, like HVAC techs, things like that, uh, certainly leverage the Facebook groups, but your core, your two core people that you need right out of the gate are going to be your cleaner and your handyman. And you'll be able to build out your network from there. Cause they're going to know local people too, who like plumbers and all that. So keep that in mind. Uh, I want, I do want to talk a little bit more about cleaners and how to approach them. So you guys don't do that wrong and, and make them not call you back. So uh, first off, I would not engage a cleaner until you are very close to closing or already closed. Uh, they're not going to meet with you before you have at least have a property under contract because they're very busy and they only have a small window of time each day between check in, check out and check in that they can do their job. So it's it's really unlikely, especially now that we're coming up on the high season, that they're going to just come meet you for coffee. I see a lot of investors who say, I'm going to interview a bunch of cleaners when I go out for my inspection. I'm going to have them meet me for coffee. Don't do that to them. Don't put them in that position. Don't don't ask them until they can come to your house and look at it. Because there's going to be a lot of things too that are going to be specific to the house. Like two two-bedroom houses could warrant two different prices per clean just because of different features that they have, like maybe hot tubs or jacuzzi tubs and things like that. So don't engage them until you're very close to closing or already closed. Uh, what other tips do you guys have for engaging cleaners? Um, Garrett mentioned before, you want to make sure, you know, the first question I would ask is what, you know, what market are you in? Or like I'm buying a property in Boone, you know, do you work in Boone? This is where my property is located because you know, the folks who are just in Blowing Rock or the folks who are just in Beach Mountain, they're going to say, no, don't do that area. Okay, great. You've, you know, spent 60 seconds of your time and their time and both of you can move on. So I would kind of prioritize the questions to weed out the folks who just aren't going to be able to do it regardless for, you know, completely objective reasons. Right. And then after that, start talking about like, okay, you know, how do you, you know, how do you communicate? Like, how do we do schedules? You want to make sure, make that as bulletproof as possible. You want to make sure that y'all communicate in the same way. And then there are other questions that you can ask that don't necessarily make a difference as to whether or not you hire them, but are just important things to know. Like, do you provide your own linens or do you need me to, you know, what sort of, um, you know, what sort of expendable things do you provide as far as like paper goods and, and soaps and things like that, just kind of getting on the same page with, you know, what they're providing, what you need to provide and how you work well together. Right. Yeah, no, I think another thing that could be maybe specific to my area that can apply in some other areas, but, you know, asking them a, where they live. Um, so like, Hey, I cover, you know, I, my cleaner, like we used to clean my condo in sugar mountain. They, they could walk to my unit. So like, Granted, do they do that all the time? But if for whatever reason we had crazy snow, it's like we live in an area where long-term rents and it's it can be really expensive for people to live long-term in right here in the heart of things. So there was a lot of times where a lot of cleaners are coming from Elizabethan, you know, Elizabethan, Mountain City, Newland, like 45 minutes to an hour, depending on when your property is located. So that can be something in the, you know, and so ask them where they live, ask them how many properties they clean, you know, not necessarily because that makes them better or worse, but if they're only a one-man team, they might be taking on too many houses at once and they can't scale fast enough or, Hey, it's just me and another girl, which means, okay, if this girl goes down and gets the flu, she doesn't have anybody else that can clean your property. And so like, 
having a cleaner that has backup cleaners or more of a team can be helpful too, because you know that can be more beneficial than having three individual cleaners that are just a one man wrecking crew. You know, but if you have a cleaner that's like, hey, I live right next door. I only, you know, it's me and I have one other person that helps if I need it to, but I'm kind of boutique. I don't do this full time. Like that could be helpful sometimes in a condo or whatever. So it all kind of depends on your property. Ask them where they live, ask them how big their team is. And um, it's not always possible, but if you can find out some other places that they clean, you know, you can talk to their their property. You could probably find it on Airbnb and figure out, you know, do some digging and figure out, okay, are these people good, not good, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, something to think about as well. What kind of car you? What kind of car you drive? If you we I mean, we talk about some roads and some of the other things, but if you just drive a Honda Civic and you got a crazy house that might need some four wheel drive in certain parts of the year, um, how are they gonna get there? Um, that can be important too. That only can sometimes just apply in the winter months, but is uh is super crucial if you got a turnover and you know your guest has a Bronco, but your cleaner has a Civic and you know they can't even get there to clean it and it's Christmas Day, you know, which happened this year. <laughs> All good questions. Uh, anybody else have anything on cleaners, handymen? You want to have, so I have something. <laughs> While you have one cleaner, you typically want to have several handymen, handy people uh, in case somebody is busy and you have something that needs to be gotten to that's time sensitive. You want to be able to go down your list and get somebody out there immediately rather than just relying on one person. Uh, other than that, anybody have any any other comments on cleaners handy? I think at least up here, like the overall theme is just remembering when you talk and communicate with people up here that you need them more than they need you. Um, and so not acting like you own the place, not acting like, Hey, I'm your boss. It's like, yeah, you're paying them and you have requirements, but at the end of the day, there's enough people that need a cleaner. You know, they're not trying to change the world or grow a business. They're not an entrepreneur. Just like, you know, they're not, they don't have, might, might not have the same mindset. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that will, clean a property for somebody and say no to somebody else just because they know, Hey, this person's not going to be a pain in the ass to work for. And it might not, mm-hmm. it might not even be about sure the money is somewhere, somewhere, but sometimes it might not even be about the money where it's just like, Hey, I enjoy going to this person's house and cleaning their house and they're good to me. And they've always been good to me, et cetera. And so kind of realizing that and realizing like, yes, you need them more than compensating them and talking to them and treating them like you need them when they need you. Well, and on that note, actually, I think there's a great temptation to create a, you know, a checklist of here are the things that I always want you to, you know, look for or do or check on in my property. And, you know, you want to be on the same page as far as expectations for the essentials, but at the same time, you know, nobody likes to feel micromanaged. Um, a checklist is a great way to make a cleaner feel micromanaged. And it just adds, you know, it adds something else to what they have to do to make, you know, to go down this checklist and actually check things off and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know of um, many people who respond well to that. So despite the temptation, um, I do not recommend having a checklist for your cleaner. Uh, The other thing that I, I mean, kind of just want to piggyback off of what Garrett said is that you do need your cleaners more than they need you. And you, if you have a good cleaner, you need to treat them like, I mean, they're worth their weight in gold and they need to be treated as such. Uh, I think a lot of people get in that, you know, they get in that I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a CEO mindset, and they aren't conscious of the way that they talk to people. And it really does matter. So treat people with respect always in anything, not just a cleaner owner relationship, but all relationships. Uh, 
not that you shouldn't generally share a checklist with your cleaner, just not something that they're going to have to complete every time because you want to make sure you're both on the same page about the work that's going to be done. Mm -hmm. From that perspective, checklists are fine. Um, Other than that, it takes too much of their time uh, because we've, we've actually tried this. And for those few occasions, you have a problem that you're trying to protect yourself from, like have pictures of everything. It's just not worth it. (laughs) It isn't. I'll, I'll tell you that from experience. So I think to just kind of piggyback on kind of, they need more, you know, you need them more than they they need you. Uh, Just also kind of knowing your market and knowing the demographic of people in your area. I mean, a lot of handymans and cleaners and people that are in the, you know, service industry up here, there's a chance they've never left North Carolina or Tennessee in their entire life, you know, and they view people that, you know, in these investors, it's kind of like this, it's almost like, uh, I feel like hedge, you know, like the hedge carpet fund. baggers. Yeah. Or like the hedge fund kind of stereotype. Same thing. Like, oh, these are just some rich guys, finance guys from New York. It's like, these are just the, the investors kind of get looped into like, oh, these rich guys from Florida or whatever. They get looped in, you know, you, you're going to get looped in, even if you're just, you know, a normal person from Greensboro that just bought their short-term rental and scared shitless and they don't, you know, whatever they view you as the same person. They view you as like the billionaire who just owns investment property and they've rented their whole life. And, you know, they, they view you as that. So like being able to communicate with people and knowing where they come from and where they live, having a relationship with them and knowing that like, Hey, and ensuring them like, Hey, you're not like, you're just a normal person just like them. And uh, I think that can just go a long way in, you know, just getting constant support, reliability, and when you can talk people off the ledge that you're not just a hedge fund guy or an investor or whatever it is from California or New York, even if you are from California or New York, um, but able to come in and even if it's that flying in to meet somebody where someone can actually put a face with the name and know, okay, this isn't just some made up person that's in a high rise somewhere else. Because a lot of times that's what people think every person that owns a second home is. I think we've all experienced that. We're like, oh, where'd you get all this money? You know, it's like, they don't know, finance, they don't know anything. They just view you as like this trust fund baby or something that not every, obviously not everybody is. Most people aren't. Totally agree with that. Um, all right. So we're kind of coming to the end of things and wrapping them up. Are there any other people that you need on your team in the high country that we haven't gone over or that we need to touch on about any of the ones that we've gone over already? Need an insurance agent. Oh, good one, Chuck. Duh. Good catch. All right, Chuck, tell us, tell us how to find an insurance agent. Uh, you need, I'm going to push local on this one because you need someone that knows the area, knows the market, knows the insurance companies that have stepped up when needed, and also to warn you away from the ones that have stepped away. Um, it's a speech I've given often, usually to someone that used an out of town insurance company. Uh, you want a broker that's got a good reputation in the community because when, when you're in smaller communities like, like the Hill Country and, 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 uh, uh, the high country and uh, Gatlinburg, they tend to have relationships with contractors that the insurance company is going to be paying, but they can often step in for you and get things done faster and in a better way. So having that local agent boots on the ground, um, you know, in uh, Tennessee, you know, there's been a couple of wildfires, one about a year ago, you know, and I know an agent, they were out there while the fire was going on. You know, and I, I recommend the heck out of this guy whenever I'm asked. And, uh, you know, nobody else did that. <laughs> so, um, if you want to ask, you know, certainly your agent's a good person to ask uh, because they're probably going to own a home themselves and have an agent, um, an insurance agent. But, you know, shop around, make calls. Uh, this is going to be a person you're not going to talk to often, 
but when you need them, they're going to be the most important person you need. Yeah. My big thing there is just make, make more than one phone call. Sometimes it's to your person who has your property somewhere else. Maybe they can help you. Maybe they can't uh, make a couple phone calls. The only other person and people that I kind of would recommend um, if it's applies to you is, is get, and it kind of goes hand in hand with everything we've talked about and everything I've just said is, is get to know your neighbors, um, whether they're investors or not. Um, If, if they're a single, you know, there is another stigma of, okay, hey, this my neighbor is going to be pissed because I have a short... Well, if you can get upstream of that, sometimes you can turn it into an asset where your neighbor actually is friends of, you know, friends of you and with you and they can you know check on things for you. Or, hey, if someone's raising hell and throwing beer cans off the back deck, you want to know that. And it's nice to have a neighbor that can do that and have a relationship with them. And so I think, you know or hey, your driveway, my guy's going to apply my driveway. You want to split the cost and he can plow yours. Little things like that. It's just always nice to have, whether it's an investor neighbor or whether it's a primary residence, some areas are 50, 50, um, kind of knowing, knowing your neighbors is I, I have found goes a long way. Um, just in establishing relationships long-term and getting upstream of potential issues. That's a great point, Garrett. And, um, you know, if you're not going to spend much time there, I mean, let's face it, some people buy properties and don't go for a year or two, you can still use the County property records, and send an old fashioned letter as an introduction. So no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. On that note, if we don't have any other notes, like anything we've missed on any of the vendors that we've already talked about, nobody? Not really. Nope. All right. I think hopefully we've covered it all. If we haven't, I will remember it. I'm sure as soon as we get off of this and I'll go back and re-record it and add it in, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So guys, if you're interested again in buying a house with Garrett in the high country, email agents at the shorttermshop.com. Also, if you just have more questions about short-term rental investing in general, come see us every Thursday live at strquestions.com. Thanks so much, guys.